turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Mark 10, 35 through 38. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? It's great to see you tonight. Uh, I know we've got some visitors with us, and we're really glad that you've come our way. Thank you so much for being here to worship with us tonight. Um, one brief announcement. In two weeks from this weekend, we're going to have a brief seminar for parents. Um, the seminar has to do with digital media and your children. And so if that's of interest to you and grandparents, you're more than welcome to come as well. There's going to be some information coming out. I know it's kind of short notice, but two weeks from this weekend. And the reason why it's planned for then is because the speaker who's coming, Chad Landman, he's going to speak to the parents and only the parents on uh, on, on Saturday night, parents and other adults who are interested. Uh, and then on Sunday night, he's going to be preaching to all of us. And then on Monday uh, or Sunday night after services, he's going to have another session with question and answer. And then on Monday night, we're going to have the area-wide, Houston area-wide summer youth series. They call it Jabberwacky, if you're not familiar with it. Anyway, Jabberwacky is coming to Katie on Monday night, and so Chad is going to be our speaker for that. He's going to speak to our young people about their use of social media and digital um, type of media and those kinds of things. And so we're living in a different generation, aren't we? There are a lot of things that you and I, when we were growing up, never had access to that our kids have access to from a very, very young age. And things that could really spiritually be devastating to young people. And so as parents and as grandparents and as elders and deacons, we want to, we want to be concerned about our youth and how we can help them and guide them and, and direct them in the way that God would have them to go, especially when it comes to technology and their use of it. So that's what that seminar is about. Again, two weeks from yesterday on Saturday in, in a couple of weeks, uh, he'll be here and you'll see more uh, information about that coming up in the next, um, next week or two. KJ preached this morning about true blessedness, and I thought it would be only appropriate for us to spend some time thinking about what it means to be truly great. To be truly blessed means that by faith we believe that God's Word, God's Word, when it's hidden in our hearts and when it's our lifestyle and when it's our approach and our meditation, God's Word brings genuine, true blessing to our life. But to be truly great... What does it mean to be truly great? I mean, think about it. When we think about greatness, we have people in history, for example, that we call Alexander the Great and Cyrus the Great and Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, all kinds of kings and rulers. Or we say, that person was a great inventor or this person was a great businessman. And so we apply that term great to a lot of different things, but it usually has to do with somebody who is at the top of their profession or at the top of the heap, the apex predator, the one that's on top, the one that is higher than everybody else. That's when we think of greatness. 
But I want you to look with me for just a few moments this evening at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And I want you to know that Jesus uses the term greatness in a counterintuitive way in this passage. Notice if you would with me, Eric just read for us about how James and John, the sons of thunder, came to Jesus and they asked for the right hand and the left hand when Jesus came into his kingdom. And then when Jesus begins to talk to them, notice in verse 42 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, Jesus says in verse 43, for whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. What's the passage about? Among other things, it's about how to be truly great. And with that thought in mind, I'd just like to walk us through what happens with James and John. You might remember James and John from your Bible study. They are two of the 12 apostles and they're brothers. They're the sons of Zebedee, the Bible tells us in verse 35. And the Bible tells us that James and John were fiery in their personalities. As a matter of fact, Jesus called them in Mark chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, Boanerges. It was kind of a term of endearment, kind of a pet name, if you will, for James and John. Boanerges. What does that mean? It means sons of thunder. James and John were the kind of men who wanted to get things done. They were the kind of men who wanted to tell it like it is. They were the kind of men who wanted to call down fire on the enemies of God. They actually did that on one occasion in Luke 9, 51 and following. And so James and John, they're ambitious, they're zealous, they, they want to be great. And look at what the Bible says they do. The Bible says that they come to him, and you know this wasn't in front of everybody else in verse 35. When they come to Jesus, they come kind of on the sly. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 20 that their mother came. And so it's not just James and John, but it's their mother. And they may have been related to Jesus. It seems like they might have been his cousins, James and John. But when you look at what James and John do, they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And of course, Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? And their request is this. Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. We know you're a king, Jesus. We know your kingdom is coming, Jesus. We know there's going to be a lot of administrative responsibilities. And we've read the Old Testament. We don't want to be Pharaoh, but we'd like to be Joseph. We don't want to be Cyrus, but we'd like to be Daniel. Daniel and Joseph were men of faith, and those men served in high places in the kingdom. And we'd like that for ourselves, Lord. And after all, we're your disciples. We've been with you from the beginning. Why not grant us this place? I'd like to bring to your attention this evening just two things. Number one, the world admires greatness. The world we live in admires greatness. And we've talked about Alexander the Great and Cyrus the Great and those kinds of people, Peter the Great, people that we talk about and apply the name great to their name. But think about what we think of in the world that makes them great. Greatness, as the world defines it, usually falls into one of four categories. Power, achievement, wealth, or fame. We tend to define greatness in terms of power. How powerful are you? Can you call the shots in somebody else's life? Do you run a country? Those kinds of things. Or achievement. 
What have you invented? What have you accomplished? What have you done to make the world a better place? What have you done to change the world? Achievement. Or we look at greatness in terms of wealth. How much you got? How much is at your command? How much liquidity do you have? Wealth. Or we look at greatness in terms of fame. Do people know your name? Are you on the A-list in Hollywood? Are you famous? Are you well-known? Do people know who you are wherever you go? That's a great person, we might say. And the thing about greatness from the world's perspective is only a few can ever be really great. Only a few. There's just a limited amount of room at the top. Think about it. James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you've only got two sides. You've got a right side and a left side. That's two. And we've done the math. There's 12 of us. And so the two of us, James and John, we want to be on the right and the left. You let the other 10 go wherever you'd like them to go, but we want to be on the two sides because we know that space is limited. And because space for greatness is limited by the world's standards, in order to become great, it's not just given to you. In order to become truly great by the world's standards, people usually have to work hard. You've got to apply yourself. You've got to grind. You've got to wake up early and you've got to get there before everybody else. And you've got to apply. You've got to work hard in order to be great at whatever you do or whatever you want to be. And not only do you have to work hard, but you have to become ruthlessly competitive, don't you? Ruthlessly competitive. Those of you in the business world know what I'm talking about. Those of you in school or who play sports, you know what I'm talking about. There is a ruthlessness that sometimes gets into people's hearts because they want to be the best. And it doesn't matter who they have to step on or step over in order to become the best. We also, if we want to become great, will do this. Try to gain acceptance with other great people. In other words, does the president know my name? Maybe I need to glad hand. Maybe I need to work my way up. Those kinds of things. If I want to be great, I've got to associate with and sit at the table with and be accepted by other great people in whatever field it is that I'm trying to be great. And then people who want to be great very often must leave others behind because there's just a little bit of room at the top for people to be great. And so if you want to be really, truly great in the world's way of looking at it, you've got to leave people behind. Think about it. How many books, how many movies have you seen where somebody was pursuing their goal, they were pursuing their dream, and because they were pursuing their dream so tenaciously, they ended up hurting all the people that loved them and leaving them behind and abandoning them? How often does that happen in people's lives? It's because I, I'm ambitious and I want to be great, and so we got to leave others behind. And I want you to look at what happens with James and John. They are doing all four of those things. James and John come to Jesus apart from the other ten apostles, and we're willing to work hard, Jesus. Put us to work. Give us your right hand, your left hand. We're willing to be ruthlessly competitive. I mean, think about it. They come to him on the slide. They're trying to beat everybody else to the punch, and they want to gain acceptance. If Jesus says yes, if he says we can be at his right hand and left hand, well, then we're, we're good. We are part of the club. We are in the greatness stratosphere. Think about it. James and John, fishermen from Galilee, and we get to be the right and left hand men in the kingdom. Oh, but 
we're going to have to leave Peter and Andrew and Thomas and Simon and all those others behind. Well, there's only so much room at the top and somebody's got to do the job. And so James and John come and this is the request they make. We want to be great, Jesus. We want to be at the top. Notice what Jesus does in response. As you look at Mark chapter 10, continuing, the Bible says that Jesus responds in verse 38 with this. You do not know what you're asking for. And then he asks a question as a follow-up. He says, James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's not talking about water baptism for salvation. When people want to become Christians, the Bible commands us to be baptized for the remission of our sins. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about what he's about to endure. He's talking about how he is about to drink a cup of wrath and he's about to be baptized in suffering and torture and pain. And he's saying, are you able? And look at what James and John say in verse 39. We are able. The world admires greatness, and the world has this in mind. Whatever price, whatever it costs to achieve greatness, it's worth it. Whatever it costs, if I can be at the top, if I can be number one, if I can be great in someone's eyes, it's worth it to pay the price. And so when Jesus asks, are you able to pay the price? They have no idea what he means, not really. They understand that he's saying that we're going to have to suffer a little bit. He's understanding that they understand that he's saying that we're going to have to go through some difficult circumstances. But boy, James and John, we're able. We can do this. We're willing to pay whatever price. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking for. From the world's perspective, whatever the price to achieve greatness, it's worth it. Then notice what goes on. Jesus says, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, the baptism I'm baptized with. You'll be baptized. And then he says in verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's for those to whom it's been prepared. And then look at verse 41. News of this gets out. I'm not sure how this all happened, but somehow the ten heard of what James and John had done. Somehow the ten found out that James and John had asked this thing of Jesus. And look at what the scripture says. They began to be greatly displeased with James and John. The world admires greatness, but here's another principle to stop and think about and get this in your mind. Whatever the world admires, the world also envies. Because not everybody can be great. Not everybody can be first chair. Not everybody can be the fastest or the smartest or the wealthiest. Not everybody can be the most powerful. And so those who aren't that, those who don't arise to the top and find greatness by the world standards, the rest of us, we envy those who do. And that's exactly what the ten are doing. Why are they upset? They're not upset because James and John are being unspiritual. Can you imagine James and John? They've, they've totally missed the point of Jesus' life and his ministry. and They're supposed to be humble. Why are they doing That's not what they're upset about. They're upset because James and John beat them to the punch, and they want that too. 
They want the right hand and the left hand. They want to be great too. Whatever the world admires, it also envies. You want to know where most of the envy and strife in this world come from? It comes from people who are looking at others and saying, I want what they've got. Happens all over the world, every day, in your life, in my life, in everybody's life. And the thing about envy, envy is when you admire somebody and something that they have or something they've accomplished, you admire that. But then what envy does, because it's a sin, it gets down into our hearts. What envy does is it always seeks to destroy its object. That's what envy does. Envy always seeks to destroy its object. Whatever it is that I envy, sometimes we envy people's friendships and relationships. You know, people are, two people are really good friends, and I wish one of them was my friend, or I wish I could be part of their group, and, and I'm just not. I'm, I'm outside, and we envy that. And so our temptation is, I want to tear that down. I want to destroy what I, what, what I see and what I envy. Or you see somebody that's got something and, and they've worked really hard and, and, and they've, they've been blessed in some ways. And you envy their blessing. And you maybe say some things about what they have and maybe make some implications or insinuations about how they came by that. You know, they're not as scrupulous. They're not as, they're not as good as they try to make out. Envy always seeks to destroy its object. And the ten are striving and contending with the two, James and John, because not only does the world admire greatness, but the world envies greatness. Well, what's the solution? I mean, we live in this world and only a few people can ever be truly great in power and wealth and achievement and fame. And so only a few people are ever going to have greatness in the sense that the world defines it. And so what does Jesus say in response to this? I mean, how are we supposed to navigate life without being coming, becoming so competitive that we step on others and ruthlessly leave others behind on the one hand, which is sin, by the way. And on the other hand, how do we navigate life so that when others are blessed and when others are great by this world's standards, we don't spend all of our lives consumed by envy that somebody else has something that I don't possess or somebody else enjoys something that I'm not able to enjoy. How do you do that? That's where Jesus' words about greatness become really practical. You want to read with me? Beginning in verse 43, verse 42, excuse me. Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. You see, that's what James and John wanted. They wanted authority. They wanted power. They wanted to be great in how much they could control. Yet it shall not be so among you, Jesus says in verse 43. He's talking to his disciples And he's talking to you. It shall not be so among you. Jesus explains greatness this way. Look at verse 43. If you want to be great, make yourself a servant. Listen to his words. It shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, Jesus says. That's how you find greatness 
And then he doesn't stop there. He repeats himself, uses different terms. Look at verse 44. If you want to be first, make yourself a slave. The Greek words are interesting. Servant, diakonos. It's the word from which we get our English word deacon. A deacon is someone who serves by stirring up the dust. That's literally the etymology of the word, to stir up the dust, the dusty road, and a deacon is shuffling and he's moving and he's, he's a man of action. Be a servant, a diakonos. And then the word slave, doulos, one who belongs to another and does not do his own will, but does the will of another. And Jesus says you want to be great, you want to be first, here's how you do it. Be a servant, be a slave. This is by faith. This is not intuitive. This is not what, if we were going to sit down and write a book about how to be great, this would never come into any of our minds because this is, brothers and sisters and friends, revelation from God. The God of heaven looks down at this world and he looks at you and me and he says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you that you're all trying to be great the wrong way. I want all of you to understand and appreciate and know that greatness is not found in how much you own or how famous you are. It is found in whether or not you are serving and whether or not you are a slave. That's the backwards way, but the divine way to greatness. And not only did Jesus teach this, but he also illustrates it in his life. Think about Jesus and the model of this very principle that the way to greatness is through service and the way to be first is by being last. Think of how he models this. Jesus throughout his life and ministry constantly resists the seductive pull, and it is seductive, of power and wealth and achievement and fame. Jesus looked at those things. He was offered those things repeatedly throughout his ministry. And every single time, I'm so thankful, he said, that's not what I'm about. I'm reminded of John chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, where the Bible says that after Jesus had fed the 5,000, that the crowds wanted to take him and make him a king by force. They wanted to put a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand, and they wanted to bow down before him and say, you are the king. And Jesus wouldn't have it because he wasn't here for power and wealth and achievement and fame. He resisted those things. And if you want to be like Christ, that can't be what we're all about either. Just can't. Instead, Jesus used his life, watch this, to identify with and to serve. Watch him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those books this week. Who did he serve? Who did he identify with? The poor, the lowly, the sick, the marginalized, lepers, those who were outcast, and the lost. Jesus said the way to find greatness in God's eyes is by identifying yourself with and serving people like that. Not many people are going to write biographies 
about a person who lives their life that way. Not many will write and, and, and give great acclaim to someone who lives their life that way. But Jesus said, that's the way to the real life. I want you to notice this as well. As you think about the life of Jesus, to use his life in this way was personally painful. It wasn't as if, and sometimes we think about servanthood, and, and don't miss this. We think about servanthood as, well, I've got some left over here. And, you know, I look around and find somebody who can use whatever I've got left over. And here, let me serve you with my leftovers. That's not the way it was with Jesus. When Jesus served people, it was painful and it was extremely costly. How much did it cost? As the poem says, he stretched out his arms and died. He went all the way. He loved us so much that he died for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. By the way, that's what he said was going to happen in Mark 10, 45 in this very context. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Where's the glory in that? Where's the praise and acclaim in that? But that's God's way to greatness. And as you look at this passage, and as you think about the way Jesus models what it means to be a servant and what it means to be a slave, here's the principle I want you to remember more than anything else tonight. In Jesus' way of thinking, everybody can be great because anybody can be a servant. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And that's the way it's supposed to be among disciples of Christ. In the world's way of looking at things, little bit of room at the top. Only two sides to Jesus, left and right. In God's way of looking at things, everybody, everybody can find genuine greatness. Greatness that matters. True greatness. And if you stop and think about it, even among New Testament Christians, true servants are really kind of rare, aren't they? Even among members of the Lord's church, those who are truly slaves to others, those who truly give up and it's costly and it's painful for them to do and to go and to be busy about, those kinds of people are really rare. And so it's ironic that even though everybody can be great, it's still a pretty exclusive club. Not because God designed it that way, but because we refuse to do by faith what God says he wants us to be about. There are two questions I want you to think about this week. Two questions as you go back to your homes and to your families and as you go back to work and to school and wherever you go this week. Two questions I want you to take with you and to think about. Question number one is this. How do I measure greatness? And the way that you know how you measure greatness is, who are the people I admire? That's really what it boils down to. Who are the people that you esteem highly and why? If you had to make a list of the top five, top ten people that you admire for whatever reason, who are those people and why do you admire them? And how many of those people 
do you admire because of their servant's heart? Second question is this. What would change about my life if my goal was nothing other than merely this, to earn the title servant? How do you earn the title president? How do you earn the title king of England? How do you earn the title greatest inventor in history? You got to work hard. You got to campaign. You got to do all kinds of things, competitive. How do you earn the title servant? By being one. And the best and the highest compliment that a servant can hear. Are you listening? The best and the highest compliment that a servant can hear is this. I see the way you're living your life, and I appreciate your servant's heart. That's a compliment beyond any other. What's God going to say at the, at the day of judgment? Well done, good and faithful servant. What would it take in your life to earn the title from others, servant? I could tell anybody I'm a servant. You could tell anybody you're a servant. Doesn't necessarily make it true. But when others start to say that about us, we know something is working right. We're on the right track with God. What would change in your life if your goal was simply to earn the title servant? A challenge to you this week over the next seven days. You know how to serve somebody? Serving is just taking my strength and helping somebody that's weak. Taking the strength that I have from God and helping somebody this week. Over the next seven days, why don't you find opportunities to take your strength and help somebody who's weak, somebody who's outcast, somebody who's despondent, somebody who's poor, be a servant. That's what Jesus says is true greatness. And he left that lesson ringing in his apostles' ears even up to the cross when he washed their feet and then told them, I've left you an example so that you might do as I've done to you. Be a servant. If you're here tonight, you're not a New Testament Christian. Jesus Christ has already been your servant. And more than anything else, he wants you to have a relationship with him. And the way that we have that relationship, the way that we enter into that covenant that Jesus has made possible is through faith in Christ, repentance, confession of the Lord's name, and baptism in water for the remission of sins. If you're ready to make that commitment this evening, or if you'd like to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?